Welcome to Leading with Empathy and Allyship. I am your host, Melinda Brown-Eppler, the founder and CEO of Change Catalyst, where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. This series goes deep and gets real. We build empathy for underrepresented and historically marginalized people and provide tangible, actionable steps we can all take to be better allies and advocates for each other. Today, we're exploring empathy, Islamophobia, or Muslim bias and discrimination, and Muslim identity. Please welcome Najiba Saeed, Associate Professor at Claremont School of Theology. Welcome, Najiba, and Ramadan Mubarak. Oh, thank you. Uh, yes, we are fasting for this month. Uh, we wake up at sunrise and eat before the sun rises and eat after the sun sets. So you may have people on your, um, on your teams that are fasting about 29 to 30 days in succession. Awesome. Yeah, we have two people on our team fasting now. Can we start with you just saying a little bit about you? What is your story and how did you end up doing what you're doing today? So I'm a professor who has this incredible job of teaching what's called interreligious education. And it's a really unique position where the institution, the graduate school where I teach, decided to invest. They were initially a mostly Christian institution, and they said, we really want to work with people of different religious traditions. So they started a position called interreligious education. So basically what I teach are courses about different religious traditions, working with one another, whether it's in, I teach a class right now that's called uh, managing interreligious nonprofits. So such a wide range of topics and you would be surprised how much literature um, there is now about working across religious traditions, both in religious settings, but also in settings um, such as the ones many of you are probably dealing with these days. Awesome. And what, what brought you to that place? Where did you start? Where did you grow <laughs> up? Um, how did you get there? Well, I immigrated to the United States when I was three years old. You know, when I was growing up, um, a lot of folks would consider their bicultural meaning occupying two different cultures as a deficit. And um, I have a friend, Manal Omar, that's, uh, that's written about this. And she says she always considered it a superpower. So instead of seeing it as a deficit, instead of saying, well, you know, I don't fit in here and I don't fit in there, I don't fit in anywhere. She took it in her work. She does international development work. And she decided to make it an asset. You know, I was, I was doing that throughout my life growing up, being able to be able to adapt to many situations. And so it's kind of a skill that um, comes out of necessity, but it becomes an asset as we um, have to be in different situations, engage with different religious traditions. And my parents, I was very lucky. Um, we were a very deeply practicing Muslim family, and they would also take us to a Sikh Gurdwara, to a Hindu temple, to a synagogue to church to experience on holidays and build friendships um, with other people when there were people would knock on the door trying to convince us to join their religion my dad would say come in and, and let's have a discussion so from a really young age I viewed religion as as a big part of my life but I also experienced and was able to have a language to be able to talk to people <laughs> of different religious traditions what in your work right now is the most interesting the most exciting for you I just edited a volume on, it's called Experiments in Empathy. <laughs> nice. And it's Muslim, Christian, and Jewish writers mostly. And some, a couple of um, 
authors that identify with maybe multiple religious traditions. We now have people that are called religiously fluid practitioners. So folks that may, um, folks that may be of one religious tradition and then practice you know, yoga, meditation, not just as a practice, but actually get em embodied in more than one religious tradition. So I thought, um, you know, the, the volume was working with a group of, of professors from different religious traditions over a three-year period, bringing them together, having conversation. What was really powerful about the idea of empathy that came out of the book was that wherever and however we do it, it's really an embodied process. Um, it's not an idea. It's not just a, it's not a belief. It's not even necessarily a value, but how do we embody empathy at the individual level? And then how is institutions for those of, for those folks that are familiar with the literature on cultural humility, how do you bring a whole institution or a whole community or um, a company into a place where they value not just diversity, but they begin to move into relationship with one another so that they're learning from one another and hopefully building their superpowers of cultural competency. Can you talk a little bit about Muslim identity? What does that identity mean for you personally? You know, one of the things is I'm speaking about my identity for participants, whether you're on the podcast or you're here with us today, particularly if you're not Muslim, as you and maybe if you are as well, it's just take a second and pause. And when you hear the word Muslim, by the way, Muslims are the followers of Islam. Um, Islam is the religious tradition itself. When you kind of conjure up in your mind, take a moment to think, you know, when I hear the word Muslim, what's the first image that doesn't show up necessarily in a search, but comes into your mind? The images that are conjured up, unfortunately, are often very... Um, associations with violence, associations with a very negative perspective of who a Muslim is. And they're even embodied in one way that Muslims look like. So I think it's important to kind of think through as we do this work, what, um, what are we bringing to the table um, in the imagery, the metaphors that we bring around uh, who a Muslim is? And one thing that's always surprised people, for instance, um, I wear hijab, I cover my hair in a particular way, but there's so many different ways. And for instance, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is in fact, probably the majority of Muslim women in the United States do not cover their hair. So um, you could be interacting or engaging with Muslim women in your workplace that have a vast difference around their practice. And that is the reality of it, but the image we carry in our mind about what a Muslim looks like, what a Muslim does, is often still static and caught in negative imagery. So I think that's really um, important to keep in mind that Muslim identity is formed um, by religious practice. It's also formed by cultural and racial identity. One of the things that surprises a lot of folks is that in the United States, uh, the majority of Arabs are actually Christian. They're not Muslim. And so um, very often Islam or Muslims are placed in one region of the world. And it's really important to understand that, for instance, the most populous Muslim country right now in the world is Indonesia. And then in fact, India or South Asia is moving into being another one of the most populous Muslim countries in the world. So where we physically even locate Islam on a map um, 
informs how and who we see as Muslim. So it's been funny for me that almost universally when I enter a room, either as a lecturer or as a uh, professor or doing training in diversity, I'll put up on the board sometimes before I say something, I'll say, where do you think I'm from? And uh, it's fascinating because I'm South Asian, born in Kashmir, and it's fascinating that almost always the answers assume that I am, for instance, Arab American. And um, the idea that Muslims would exist in South Asia is, is, um, is, is fascinating for some people. They don't even know how to get to that point. So I think the geography of Muslim identity, and as we know in the United States, one of the largest Muslim communities is African-American. So Muhammad Ali is a very important figure for Islam in America, and that these are Muslims, for many, some are convert into the tradition, but many are third, fourth, if not multiple generations of Muslims, and that Muslims have been in the United States before its inception. So I think it's really important to think through that geographic location of Islam because very often it's associated with only one um, ethnic or, or language community and the vastness of who will be in your workplace. You may see race first or ethnicity and not see religion. So actually many Muslims are invisibilized in the workplace because of the fact that um, as managers, we may put people in boxes when we see a woman in hijab or we see a man who has a beard and somehow looks looks like whatever that image that the media is always um, kind of pushing uh, into our minds about what a Muslim looks like, what a Muslim sounds like. So yeah, I guess that would be part of the way I would want us to think about identity is adding all the other factors of race, community, religion, um, national origin, um, ethnicity, culture, language, food, because it's Ramadan and I'm hungry. <laughs> People even ask me, they'll say, was there one food that Muslims like? And I will often say, you know, that really depends. What we bring to a South Asian home may be very different than what someone would bring, you know, in an African-American Muslim community. There isn't always one universal, there isn't a uni one universal culture around daily uh, existence. Yeah, we, we you know, in, with this series that is coming up over and over again, that, you know, we talk about one identity and we identify people often as one identity. And it's really, we are this beautiful world of intersectionality where um, many of us have several identities that converge together to become one whole human. Let's talk a little bit about Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bias and discrimination. What, what types of things come up, especially in the workplace, but in general, because I think that things that come up outside of the workplace, we, we bring that within us uh, to the workplace. Islamophobia has currency now. It's become a popular term. It's not a, it's not a term that's been around for 60, 70 years. It's a term that developed um, through reports that were done on anti-Muslim bias, and it kind of took currency and became popular. So while I think it has a particular um, history that's important um, and it comes out of a set of, of um, practices, one of the reasons um, I think it's really important to understand that when we say Islamophobia, for most people, that doesn't mean you can't be critical of Islam or Muslims. Um, in fact, Muslims themselves are <laughs> very critical. Just so if I sit with my mom and dad, pretty much 
any discussion is what most, what could Muslims do better? You know, so it's, it's um, I think that's really important to put out there because sometimes when we are um, human resources professionals, you know, religion is, is a scary topic to get into. Religion is a difficult topic to approach. And sometimes um, managers or team leaders have told me, I don't even, you know, I don't, I don't touch religion or talk about religion. And that actually doesn't serve, um, as we said earlier, different forms of identity well. So one of the things that I found helpful and others who are doing interfaith work or work across multiple religious traditions is to identify it as anti-Muslim bias because it's not that one is calling for always say positive things about Islam. You can't be critical about Islam. It's actually the bias that exists um, within individuals or institutions or systems related to um, related to um, a Muslim identity. So thinking about that helps because um, I think very often it allows us, it gives us the vocabulary to say, what are some of the issues that Muslims may particularly face? So for instance, um, we now know that around election cycles, national election cycles, there is an uptick, and this is usually, um, we can empirically watch this happen, of hate crimes against Muslims because of the language and the scapegoating of uh, Muslim populations. A young student at a college we were in a session around diversity and I was working with the human resources department and he came up to me afterwards and took me aside and said, uh, Professor Saeed, you know, I want you to know that I have a Muslim sounding name and I don't use it anymore because I'm afraid that I will be targeted for anti-Muslim bias or speech. So anti-Muslim bias can be found in forms of speech. It can be found in forms of workplace harassment. It can be found in uh, ways that people are not even hired. So uh, if you look at, for instance, I remember another, actually a family member who changed his name from Osama. Osama is a, is a given name that he was not named after. Um, he was not named after Osama bin Laden. That was his name that he had way before 9-11. But he was worried about having that name and being able to get hired without bias um, or having bias against him. So the bias can begin even before you're hired. Do you get into the door? Um, do you get clients? Um, and I think that's a really important question if you're in a client-based industry. What do you do if a client says, I don't want that person because they're Muslim? Or they may not even be that descriptive, but I've seen that also come up in client-based um, industries where what do you do as a manager when someone um, introduces anti-Muslim bias, not in the workplace, but in the, in, on the client side? And how do you handle that? And I've seen numbers of cases around that as well, where the preference is for someone who is not Muslim. I think it's also important to keep in mind who is perceived to be Muslim is not always ontologically correct. By that, I mean, someone may not even uh, be Muslim, but kind of that identity is attached to them. So for instance, in the United States, among Sikh Americans, S-I-K-H, Sikh men with turbans, um, which is part of their religious practice and beards, both deeply spiritual, deeply uh, held religious beliefs, not just preferences, similar to the coverage 
of my hair very deeply held religious beliefs for those who do it. Again, you know, not everyone does all of these things in any religious tradition, as we said. That community has been the most targeted for violent hate crimes. And I, I think that's important to keep in mind is anti-Muslim bias may operate against people who identify as Muslim and it may operate against people who are also put into the community by the perception of whomever um, is viewed as Muslim. So Mm -hmm. it's a very complex kind of bias. And if we add to it, as you mentioned earlier, um, intersectional identity, add to it, for instance, um, someone who, as many many of us deal with xenophobia, if you're an immigrant and you're also Muslim, and the majority of Muslims in the United States, it's one of the most diverse religious communities. There are some Muslims who who are white, but the vast majority of Muslims are non-white. So whether they're immigrants or African-American Muslims, um, which is a large population, thinking about all of those different biases that are already existing and add to that an element around religion. Uh, This is a very rich conversation to have and I think probably much longer than just this brief (laughs) engagement that I'm so delighted that you're open to having a conversation about its depth because sometimes I think like people come to the table and they say oh let's talk about Muslim identity and it means we want to fast we want holidays and it's actually I think a lot more deeper so and I would kind of you know I think Melinda just kind of end my comments on this here is that the more that you can think of anti-Muslim bias and integrating it into your anti-racism education your cross-cultural competency training, cross-cultural communication, it just helps to be able to see it as a form of bias instead of always pushing it out um, and understanding that it does operate. Um, Unfortunately, empirically, we know that it does exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've done a lot of work around empathy. Can you talk a little bit about what empathy is to you and how we counter those anti-Muslim biases while building empathy? You know, I talk about it as embodied empathy. And um, what we're trying to build in our workplaces is a religiously pluralistic society in many ways. This is just a term you may want to explore more, this idea of religious pluralism, that there is racial diversity, ethnic diversity, language diversity, and then there's this idea of religious pluralism. And that doesn't apply just to Muslims. There are other communities, uh, the Jewish community in the United States faces and has dealt with historical anti-Semitism. There have been campaigns against um, when a Hindu community wants to build a temple in a particular city, there have been anti-Hindu bias. So I'm just pointing out that there are multiple forms of bias around religion. And I think as professionals in the human resources and human uh, development field, thinking about what is unique about anti-religious bias and what is also similar to, you know, how does it play into other forms of, of bias that already exist? Um, so empathy to me is really about understanding the perspective of someone's life from their viewpoint. And um, some of us call this perspective taking and um, Carol Winner and Moskowitz do a lot of research in this area. And one of the things they say is it's not about walking in someone's shoes because I, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I, 
I can't walk in your shoes and have the same experience. I think you have red hair. I don't know what it's like to be <laughs> redhead. I understand that's a minoritized minority experience um, in the United States. Um, but uh, we can, for a moment, stand in someone else's shoes. And perspective, perspectival or perspective thinking or taking the perspective of the other means just trying to understand your experience from your own, from the perspective of someone else. And in fact, um, this skill of perspective taking is considered um, one that is integral to problem solving. So I'm trained as a lawyer. So to be a good lawyer, I would actually want to know all the perspectives on the case. And I'm a better lawyer if I can argue all the different sides of the case, whether or not I believe in them or not. And so to kind of extrapolate from that, our workplaces become richer and people develop intellectually and cognitively if they begin to be able to understand experiences of others. Um, and hopefully, I think there's understanding, acceptance, and then appreciation. I think we have to be careful that not everyone's ready to move to appreciation and not everyone's ready to move to embracing they may just be at the point where something is so, um, it evokes such a deep response that we have to sometimes meet people where they are and understand that over time, you will build the capacity hopefully for appreciation. But sometimes the intervention has to really fit the conflict. And um, I'll just kind of round up these comments. I remember going into institutions, whether it's a university or a workplace, um, I did some work with, uh, with a large uh, company that had a large fleet of truck drivers. And I remember going in and if I ask the CEO or the head of HR, if I say, do you have any conflicts? And they say, no, first of all, I know that they're not telling the truth, but I always tell people to be in, to be in community is to be in conflict. If an institution has built a culture where people actually care about each other and the mission they will be in conflict. And so conflict is not a bad thing. It's an indication that people actually care about each other enough or they care about their work enough to have a conflict with each other. So I think it's helpful when we think about empathy in general, this doesn't have to just do with anti-Muslim bias, but to think about the value of conflict, the value of growth and not to jump into it with, um, as uh, you know, a lot of us have legal obligations to jump into it with, shutting down the conversation. So I think one of the most powerful learning experiences is going and transforming through the process of getting to know someone else um, through the shared workplace environment. Yeah, I 100% agree that that conflict, that um, kind of learning and growing and, and that growth mindset that you have to have in order to do that is really where innovation happens as a result of diversity. And I think I absolutely agree. That's, that's really important. So how do leaders within uh, the workplace, um, how do leaders build empathy in their organizations? What are some practical ways that they can address anti-Muslim bias, but also build empathy within their organizations? I think part of the complexity of the Muslim identity in the United States, I mentioned already, for instance, the diversity, the racial diversity in the United States. 
There's also another element that deeply affects these uh, dynamics, in addition to pre-existing racial discrimination, or also for many Muslims who have uh, an international um, identity, such as myself, someone that you know immigrated from another country, that sometimes when incidents happen abroad, or they happen even here in the United States between communities, and there's an inflammation of tensions, that will come into the workplace. So part of anti-Muslim bias is that it exists not just here in the United States or in your community, but it can also find its way into your workplace between people of different traditions, whether they're cultural or religious, who may bring in, um, who may bring in conflicts that pre-exist the relationship of the workplace and even may go back, some of these issues may go back for centuries. So I don't mean to, you know, to scare people off, but my point here is that it's a very rich identity. So there may be, um, there may be inflammatory speech that's used in um, the media that is based on something that happens elsewhere. And I think that's important to keep in mind because sometimes the conflict management or um, intervention, you may see something that happens in the news and think it has no implication for what's happening in your workplace, because it's not related to the topic of research, it's not related to what you're producing. But in fact, there are ways in which, um, in which these realities um, intersect. So because of that, one of the things I always tell people um, is, it's much better to build relationships and trust in times of peace it's much more helpful to be preemptive in our programming than imagine there is something that happens, um, and this doesn't have to be related, as I, as I articulated earlier, to external forces that are already engaging in society, but if there's a conflict that happens in the workplace, it's much better if we're able to be preemptive and do what I call in my work sort of prevention or conflict prevention before you have to move to the third party. So some of the things that are helpful kind of preemptively is we talked about this notion of anti-Muslim bias, um, and that's programming that in some ways is negative, um, a, a negative response, um, an intervention response. But there are also ways to build programming throughout the year that uh, showcase and articulate an appreciation of your employees and your team members that are Muslim, um, just as it would for others. So, um, you know, for instance, um, holidays are often a regular way we may celebrate holidays of one tradition or one community. And this is an invitation for Muslim uh, team members to share maybe um, a way that they celebrate a holiday as well. I think we also need to look at, look at culture and religion. For many people, they may not be strict uh, observance, observance of the religious tradition. So, you know, the percentage of Muslims that are going to ask for things like accommodation around ritual, for instance, around the five-time daily prayer, that is an accommodation that some of your employees may um, be looking at. So one thing to keep in mind, a preventive thing, is to have a conversation and to learn about the religious tradition, to understand what are some of the accommodations. So, some of the issues that often come up perennially are, um, are accommodation for prayer, uh, accommodation or engagement around issues of fasting, 
Um, another that is also um, can be important is for many Muslims, alcohol is not consumed and even being around alcohol in social events or social settings can be very difficult. So I'll give you an example. In my work, a lot of the conferences I go to, professors mingle in bars. And I have colleagues who would teach their classes in bars, but that is, again, not for all Muslims. And I think one of the things that's helpful is not to assume every Muslim is going to have the same set of needs. But that's one of the perennial issues that come up, you know, this when cultures are built around the consumption of alcohol. And it's not for someone who practices like me, it's not just about not drinking or I'll take I never drink and I prefer not to be around alcohol. That's my level of practice. So how do I accommodate and deal with a workplace where so much of the socializing happens around alcohol? For some Muslims, um, the form of dress, as you can see with hijab, um, and some people don't wear it quite like I do. It's Others will wear it in a different way. It's vastly different. Imagine the world has more than a billion Muslims and in the United States, we have probably six million or so of such so many different cultural backgrounds. And for some Muslim men, the wearing of a beard is important. And um, in addition to all of those, for some Muslims, uh, cross-gender touch, similar to some of the Orthodox Jewish community, physically uh, touching one another um, can be a conversation that needs to be engaged. Um, so those are some of the perennial issues that have come up when um, workplace, uh, sort of at the interpersonal level, where there's conflicts at the interpersonal level, not necessarily around bias, but just around different practices where workplaces may really privilege or favor a different kind of practice. And it's really hard when you're the only one sometimes, you know. I remember a colleague of mine, he was at a law firm and they had a table for the Mormons and the Muslims. <laughs> so it was this interfaith table at all their receptions because none of the Mormons, you know, um, that Latter-day Saints, they don't drink. So they created this table at events where it was, and also there are people who don't drink for uh, reasons of recovery, right? So it would end up with these three different groups of people at one table. So Sometimes these are not issues just for Muslims. This could be a, an issue that you haven't seen or thought of. Just because it's not an issue for you doesn't mean it's not an issue for others. But one thing I'm gonna, I really wanna just put in here that's I think helpful for the conversation is Christopher Moore is a conflict resolution scholar and he talks about two kinds of values, terminal values and day-to-day -day values. Terminal values are non-negotiable, deeply inherent to identity in terms of values. The other are day-to-day, -day, they're negotiable. So I cover my head, and I remember when I was in college, I went in for a job interview at a local uh, health food store. And I went in for the job interview, I got the job, and the next day, um, the manager came in and said, oh no, you can't wear our smocks. I didn't wanna wear the smock because it was ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, no, I can't wear it. Why? She goes, because it's blue. And I looked at her and I thought, oh, because it's blue. She thought because I was dressed differently that day. And I was also in my stage of college where I was into, at that time, I think more goth and uh, emo music. So I was wearing all black. So she thought that my, cult, my religious value, my terminal value was the all black clothing. And so the blue was a problem. But so it took me a minute to process that. And I told her, no, no, actually, I can wear blue 
I still didn't want to wear this long guy so I can wear blue. But what I can't negotiate is for me to remove my hair cover. So the modesty of my clothing was non-negotiable, but the color was negotiable. The way we see religion in particular, it's helpful to know what are the terminal values and what are the day-to-day values. Don't ascribe something as non-negotiable or negotiable when the person hasn't articulated to you yet what um, or how they want to, to deal with that. What is one thing that you most wish that allies knew or that would allies would take the time to learn in order to be a better ally for you? And I think this is something, that's a really good question that we talked about, is engage Muslims and normalize the conversation around Muslims in the workplace before before there's an instigation of us having to be defensive. So I'll Mm -hmm. give you an example. I worked a lot with um, organizations that serve uh, youth and they wanted to do outreach to the Muslim community. But the only time they would do outreach is when they would essentially say, you know, aren't Muslims all violent, which is an anti-Muslim bias, this idea that all Muslims, no matter who they are, commit violence. That's uh, a really problematic assumption, obviously, for many reasons. But in their interest in being inclusive of the Muslim community, they would only invite Muslim speakers <laughs> to come and prove that Islam is not violent. So even if our intention is to be positive, just be very careful. Um, in conflict resolution, we say the most powerful form of power is actually convening people and bringing people together. So how are we building ways in which we normalize Uh, the conversation around being Muslim in the workplace? Mm -hmm. What are ways that we celebrate that identity as we celebrate others? And how do we look at the contributions um, so that it isn't just that we're trying to counter bias and that's the only time we talk about a Muslim identity. And I have to say, unfortunately, that's probably that's probably the strategy that's often used. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that is a responsive strategy, which is good. You need that strategy. Um, But I think for allyship, that would be really helpful is to have a conversation where we're not tiptoeing around it, where it's not scary, where it's integrated into the education that we're doing um, already within the workplace. I think as an ally, it's surprising. Sometimes people think that um, what's most helpful is to be out there leading and valiant and standing up. And I think, in fact, for a lot of folks in the workplace, they want to be able to, to have parts of their tradition privately, and then they want to deal with some of it publicly and they want to engage with some of it in conversation. But I think negotiating that is going to be partly about your religious literacy, learning about the religious tradition. And I think that goes a long way in anti-bias education around religion in general, just increasing your um, religious literacy. So knowing that when someone comes to you with a concern, if you're already aware that Ramadan exists, What's so helpful with allies is when I don't have to explain everything or even just not just explain, but justify everything. So I would just encourage us to really engage and develop religious literacy and develop religious literacy, particularly in the communities that are present in your workplace, because Muslims are so vast in our diversity you know, where are the folks that are in your workplace? Where are they coming from? What is their background? Um, And do some of that work on your own. You know, it doesn't have to always be putting the burden on the employee. Being able to do some of that work on your own is really helpful. 
um, there's actually a black Muslim COVID coalition that's emerged. There's another one called the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. These are organizations that can come in and do specific training. There are in almost every major metropolitan area, Muslim speakers bureaus, um, and they have professionals. So if you are a tech professional, if you are uh, in a particular industry, because sometimes engaging that kind of professional organization, or as I mentioned, an issue specific organization can be more relevant to a workplace than bringing in just a religious leader, like an imam or a clergy member. There are also organizations that do interfaith work in nearly every city as well. There are professional organizations for Muslims in tech. There is a collaborative organization for Muslims in the entertainment industry. So some of the suggestions I can make for allies are to try your best to engage people from the community and have a constructive conversation and to do your research. Um, because I think it's always better to bring in someone from the community because Islam, Christianity, Judaism, whatever religious tradition is not just about scripture, but it's about what we call lived religion. How are people living out this religious uh, identity in their everyday life? I would just encourage you to also consider the employees you have before you do anything or before you put together a program, see what they need. I think needs assessment is really important because sometimes it's misdiagnosing the need that can actually, um, you know, I remember growing up, I've been um, covering my head since about sixth grade. And I remember whenever the teacher would get to the section on Saudi Arabia or whatever the issue was, she would look at me and say, well, Najiba, what do you have to say? And I think a lot of folks who come from uh, minoritized perspectives have had their teacher do that. So we don't want to be that teacher when, you know, we call out the employee in front of everybody else. So that's where it takes um, building the relationships ahead of time and also not framing the question always as a problem, but framing it as, are we doing a good job representing and engaging the ways that you identify in the workplace? And if we're not, how could we do that better? So that's just something I wanted to point out. I think a lot of Muslims being a minority religious community in the United States, while ethnically and racially, it's a very diverse community, it's still a small community. And it's also a minority religious tradition in a country that is still largely Christian. So things like holidays are not just minor things. Our weekly congregational prayers on a Friday, not on a Saturday or Sunday. So we're already dealing with a structural um, anti-Muslim bias. And by that, it's not necessarily negative in its intention, but in its implication. So you're dealing with people who carry perhaps a lot of struggle already with trying to just fulfill religious obligations. Um, there's also one other piece that I wanted to add. For some Muslims, similar to the Jewish community, kosher meat, we don't, it's called halal or zabiha. For some Muslims, that's not for all Muslims. That's also an important factor in uh, workplace um, issues. So, Can you explain what that is real quick? Um, similar to the um, Jewish community, it's about how the animal is treated at the time of, 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 um, of slaughter. So... Um, that process, and again, not all Muslims subscribe to that. Um, you know, and then uh, for many Muslims, for most Muslims, the idea of not eating pork is also, you know, so dietary restrictions come up. And it can be difficult often when you're the only one. And so another thing I think that allies can do because Muslims, now in some industries, you may have a lot of Muslims, um, you know, 
uh, on in your workplace. So it, folks may not be in the minority in your workplace, but just keep in mind in general society, sort of the power reality is a minoritized power reality, um, even if you have a lot of Muslims in your workplace. Um, so I think for um, the support of allies is knowing, um, for instance, that if I speak up about something or if an employee speaks up about something that they are going to be supported um, and not just supported, um, I think, quietly. <laughs> That's a problem with a lot of allies. They're willing to support us quietly on the side, you know, after we leave the meeting. It's uh, when I work with religious groups, they talk about it as a parking lot conversation. How do we deal with being able to really have embodied solidarity when someone is dealing with difficulties and issues and um, being able to be the one that maybe brings it up? There is a story about my college years in a book on religious pluralism in the United States. And I had, there were no other Muslims that at my college. And so I fasted and I was really lonely because there were no other Muslims and my other students in my all women's dorm, they actually uh, woke up with me pre-dawn and surprised me and ate with me. You know, so those are the kinds of things that were really powerful because what happened was uh, for me is that it was about actually supporting me in a celebratory way and hopefully there's reciprocity, not just, you know, I did the same with them for other religious traditions. Where can people learn more about your work? I'm on Twitter at Najiba Saeed, and then there's also my website, Najiba.com. So you can um, do direct inquiries, and um, the speaking company and others can help bring it to me. Thank you, Najiba. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for sharing your passion, for sharing all of this amazing insight. Really appreciate that. We appreciate you. It was an absolute pleasure. So I look forward to, to being in touch and it was a very rich discussion. Agreed, agreed, 100%. So everyone, keep this going. Keep the conversations and the learning going. Be brave, be courageous, and take new actions. Thank you for joining us today. Join us each week for Leading with Empathy and Allyship. You can sign up to attend with live audience Q&A, or you can catch the podcast or the video afterwards, and you can stay in the loop by going to changecatalyst.co, changecatalyst.co, and signing up for our newsletter. So don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel, and we will see you next time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>